1: Every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of life. Welcome
0: display. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com, as well as on iTunes. We also have our blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com. In today's episode, we sit down with Russell Stevenson, author of Black Mormon, the story of Elijah Abels. In the church, we often talk about the priesthood ban prior to 1978, and there's always some confusion over how that ban began. So we go back to the first priesthood holder of African descent, Elijah Abels, and discuss his story with the author Russell Stevenson. Now on to my interview with Russell Stevenson. Russell Stevenson, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today?
2: I'm doing fantastic. Bill, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. We're, we're grateful to have you on today. For my listeners who, who may not know, Russell Stevenson is the author of a, a book, Black Mormon, The Story of Elijah Abels. And it's an interesting story because in the church we talk a lot about priesthood and some of the back and forth of whether it was a doctrine or a policy. And we're grateful to have uh, Russell Stevenson on today because he's going to share with us the story of Elijah Abel and help us perhaps place in perspective this story of this man who who was one of, if not the first, uh, uh, person of African descent, a black man who received the priesthood. And so maybe, Russell, if you can just start us off, tell us a little bit about how long it took to, to do this work and the research that went into it.
2: Uh, you know, researching this book has uh, has been really an invigorating experience. Uh, I first discovered the documents necessary to write the book while I was working at the Church History Archives. Uh, I was doing some Rather related but um, but different work for the church, and I found some documents that no one had really seen before or used before. And I thought, huh, it would be good to write an article on Elijah Abel's. And it had been some time since um, anyone had written on him, so I decided to at least start out with an article. And then, as I began to dive into the documents, I found that there was enough to merit an entirely new revisiting of his life and legacy. So I decided to start from the ground up. You know, I, I looked into, you know, his childhood. I looked into you know, his experiences teaching in, in Canada and uh, I saw a very different story than the one that I had been um, taught previously. Uh, before I I had seen Elijah Abels primarily as a token figure, you know, a, a rather one dimensional man, uh, the person who was trying to stay in the church, but you know he was constantly persecuted, constantly attacked, constantly criticized by both friends and foes alike. I, I realize that that wasn't really the Elijah Abel that surfaced from the documents.
0: Gotcha. well, let's let's get started right into it. Would you mind uh, sharing with us maybe some of the interesting uh, points from his early life and his conversion to the church?
2: Certainly. so his his early life is shrouded in mystery and and that's often the case for. African-Americans living in antebellum Antebellum America. Uh, Oftentimes, you you just don't have a lot lot of documentation. You know, you might have the journal entry of a slave owner. Uh, You might see some references in in the local newspaper. But documentation is quite limited. In fact, the only reason we can have a biography about Elijah Abel's is because he joined the church. Uh, What we can say is that he was born in western Maryland and that the census numbers indicate he was likely a slave. Now, we don't know that with any degree of of certainty. We just know that there were far more slaves than there were free blacks uh, in the places where, um, you know, he could have been born, either Washington or or Frederick counties. So while we can't nail that down, you know, I I do find the runaway slave narrative uh, to be an attractive one. And, you know, if someone were to make a movie about it, I would say that they would not be amiss to uh, to portray it in that light. So Elijah Abels, he somehow makes it from Western Maryland to Cincinnati around the late 1820s, early 1830s. Uh, we know that he had a child at some point, uh, whether this was a child from a marriage or whether it was um, some other kind of, of union, we don't know. Uh, we just know that she, she, she did die as, as an infant or, or as a toddler. And in Cincinnati he likely found his first taste of freedom. Cincinnati was renowned as being the vortex of the Underground Railroad. Uh, It was a pretty dangerous city for a free black man to live at at that. Uh, Anytime you have a border city, you have a strong pro-slavery contingent, even if it's technically in free territory. So when Elijah Abel's was walking the streets of Cincinnati for the first time, he was in a pretty heated environment. Uh, Cincinnati is where Harriet Beecher was living at the time. She would eventually, you know, marry her husband and then become Harriet Beecher Stowe, who would write Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was in the Cincinnati, northern Kentucky region where she was first exposed to the evils of, evils of slavery. That would inspire her to write some of the more powerful vignettes in Uncle Tom's Cabin.
0: So, in regards to his conversion, when did he meet up with the church?
2: He first met a man by the name of e- Ezekiel Roberts in in or around 1832, e- Ezekiel Roberts—he was a local man. He was not a missionary. Uh, he was just a, a blacksmith, a father of two. You know, really a great member missionary story. And he really had not lived outside of that region at any point in his life. That he was not uh, a part of the main body of the Saints. So somehow, some way, Elijah and Ezekiel meet up, and e- Ezekiel uh, e- Elijah finds. You know, the Mormon message to be a pretty moving one, and you know, given how the Mormons saw African Americans at this time, that doesn't really surprise me. You know, you look at the Book of Mormon, and it says that the gospel is for black and white, bond and free. And in Western Missouri, you have uh, Mormons like W. W. Phelps who are talking about the end of the slave uh, slave trade and the end of slavery generally as being a wonderful event. So at this point in Mormon history, uh, all the evidence suggests that. Latter-day Saints were uh, inclined to be racially inclusive.
0: So, so he joins the church, and you, and you, which is kind of a neat story from what you say, that this guy, uh, who is the person sharing the gospel with him isn't even with the main portion of the saints, he's just kind of off on his own.
2: Yes, more or less. There was a small branch there that had been established by, by Lyman White uh, the year earlier, uh, but it really, they had probably never met Joseph Smith or any of, any of the main leaders. They were probably only exposed to the Book of Mormon and, you know, whatever preaching Lyman White and others uh, gave them.
0: So does he, does he get ordained to the priesthood relatively quick after his membership or, or how does the ordination come about?
2: He, he is not uh, immediately ordained to the priesthood. Um, he, he is not ordained until 1836 after he joins with the main body of the saints, w- which is interesting uh, given that there would have been some level of priesthood leadership uh, in the Cincinnati region, so they would have been able to ordain Elijah to the priesthood, and yet they did not. Um, the exact reasoning for that is, is unclear. It would not be until Elijah would meet Joseph Smith in person that he would receive uh, you know, ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood. So I, I think that speaks to uh, an interesting um, limitation for blacks in the in the church at this time. While they were open to having blacks. And even open to having blacks as members of the priesthood, they weren't gung ho about it. They weren't saying, "Okay, you know, let's let's go, you know, baptize all the blacks and give them all the priesthood." Uh, They just they they hadn't really formed their policy at this point. In fact, it it would take Joseph Smith to really push for this policy to be implemented.
0: So it's almost like like you like you're saying that they almost need a special sanction from the prophet to say, with this specific individual, go ahead and do that. <clears throat>
2: Excuse me. Uh, I believe that to be the case, and uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, you know this is indicative of any kind of policy. I would say this is indicative of you know the assumptions that many Latter-day Saints had uh, accepted at that time. While they were generally friendly to the blacks, in fact that would get them in some trouble in Missouri. Uh, they weren't quite ready to entrust them with um, uh, with any kind of authority. It would take Joseph Smith's sheer will to to make that happen. Gotcha.
0: So going – I guess I want to ask this. When he's ordained to the priesthood, in our mind today, we see priesthood as when you turn 12 years old, you get the Aaronic priesthood. When you turn Hmm. 18 or 19, you get the Melchizedek priesthood. So we see that in the priesthood that uh, young men are ordained at age 12. They go through different offices in a certain order. At 18 or 19, we're ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood. Do we know with Elijah Abels whether he is ordained to the Aaronic or Melchizedek or what office?
2: Uh, we do uh, um, you know, we have no documented evidence of him being ordained to the, ordained to the, the Aaronic priesthood but we do have sure fire evidence of him being ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood uh, you know, we have his elders certificate it is in the church archives anybody can go there at any time and, and see it for themselves so that, that's, that's really not trouble. up for dispute at, at, at this point and what's, what's noteworthy about the timing of this ordination is it's it, it makes it clear that Joseph Smith was navigating a pretty difficult racial uh, coalition within the church. Because, you know, on the one hand, um, you you do have people who are, you know, fairly anti-slavery, you know, people like W.W. W. Phelps, know, I mean, he was willing to prevaricate on certain things, but you know, at, at the end of the day, he uh, he had been an abolitionist. And on the other hand, you have, you know, people like Zebedee Coltrane and Abraham Smoot, who, you know, they are a lot more... Um, uh, a lot more sympathetic to the slave system. In fact, Abraham Smoot himself uh, would own two slaves. And to complicating matters further, you have uh, the ghosts of Jackson County. You see, the saints had been you know, expelled from Jackson County in summer of 1833. And one of the primary reasons that they were expelled from Jackson County was because of their friendliness towards the black population. Uh, you know, whatever their views were on, on priesthood or or a- anything else to that end, they, they certainly did not see slavery as a good thing and then when WW. W. Phelps publicly says you know maybe some blacks can come into the state of Missouri and you know join with the body of the saints, it sends the local press into a connection uh, they basically assume that the latter-day saints are trying to racially integrate the population and worse still that they're promoting racial intermarriage and and, and that was the gravest of all sins no you know, no respectable white person, north or south, east or west, would ever endorse interracial marriage. And these were the accusations that they were leveling against the Latter-day Saints. It would ultimately lead to them being, um, you know, being ref- refugees in western Missouri. And Joseph Smith was very aware of this. So what Joseph Smith does is, in March of 1836, he ordains Elijah Abel to the priesthood, but then the next month, he writes an editorial for the Messenger and Advocate. And in this, he lays out every standard southern argument for slavery and endorses it, upholds it, celebrates it, says that slavery is indeed ordained of God, and that anyone who says otherwise is clearly unfamiliar with the, the real situation that southerners face. He says that blacks are morally decrepit, that they're, you know, a really dangerous class of people. And this is all within a month uh, of his ordaining Elijah Abels.
0: So we like to paint Joseph or other leaders kind of being one side of, uh, of an issue or another, but realizing that at this time in our country that there was a lot of uh, tension over this, over slavery and over, over the issue that result, revolved around their freedoms, the the abilities that they had to do things, uh, they're, they're being considered property, and so Joseph is having a hard time kind of navigating this issue too, it seems.
2: Yes, that's the impression that comes from the documents. Um, A couple months after Elijah Abel's um, ordination, uh, Governor Daniel Dunklin of Missouri sent a letter to W.W. Phelps and said, listen, you all have been accused of being abolitionists, and just to be clear, being an abolitionist meant that you weren't just anti-slavery, but that you wanted to end slavery immediately. That was seen as uh, a radical position. It was akin to being uh, a, a terrorist. You know, you, you weren't—you didn't just want slavery to end. You were, you were the kind of person who would sneak into black communities and stir up trouble. So Governor Duncan says, if you Mormons don't want to be seen as abolitionists, well, then it's up to you. The burden is on you to prove your innocence. And gotcha. th- this was not just an abstract debate. Uh, it, this was the kind of thing that had caused, you know, the Latter-day Saints to be kicked from Jackson yeah. County. It, right. it, 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 could, it could mean lives. So Joseph Smith uh, was indeed put in a very difficult position and on on the one hand he supported men like Elijah Abels his friendship with Elijah Abels would last generations uh, even uh, or at least the memory of his friendship with Elijah Abels would last for generations even in the 20th century people would be remembering how close Joseph and Elijah were Uh, but at the same time he could not allow Jackson County to happen again
0: right, no that's fully understandable alright so Elijah Abel is ordained to the priesthood. He's ordained to the office of elder, correct? Correct. Okay. And so where does, what happens to Elijah Abel after this? What is, where does he go?
2: So he's, uh, at, the, at this point, he has joined with the main body of the saints in Kirtland. And as often happens, shortly after you receive the Melchizedek Priesthood, you are called on a mission. Now, we have no hard evidence of his being called, but we do know where he was called, and we do know something of what he was doing when he was serving there. In summer of 1838, spring-summer, he served in Ontario, Canada. Now, the location is, is significant here. You know, sometimes you might say, okay, you know, one, one mission is basically the same as another. But in this case, Ontario, it would have had the um, interesting uh, ramifications for Elijah Abels, because this was the leading site for runaway slaves in North America this was kind of seen as you know the uh, the holy land if you could make it to ontario then you really couldn't hope for much better if you were a runaway slave uh, the slave community or the runaway slave communities there they often talked about how good it was how this was really a place for any black person to go in and make good for themselves and we know that elijah abels was there from you know quite a few sources you know, Andrew Jensen, in his biographical encyclopedia, he uh, identifies Ontario as Elijah Abel's mission uh, mission site. Uh, we also have contemporary correspondence that talks about the preaching of a, of a black missionary uh, affiliated with the Mormons. And it, it gives us a, a pretty vivid description of the kinds of things that uh, this black missionary was called upon to do. So what you have here is you have on the leading site for... For black runaway slaves, you have uh, pretty proof positive evidence that Elijah Abels was serving there. And furthermore, you have Joseph Smith who is fearful of what could happen to blacks if they were to be living in Missouri. I mean, it it was written in the law that no free black or mulatto, as they were called, uh, you know, the, the the biracial African Americans, would be allowed into Missouri. So what I postulate, and this isn't something that we can definitively prove, but I think circumstantial evidence is friendly towards this interpretation. Uh, I postulate that Ontario was potentially a site for a, a Black Mormon congregation, and Joseph Smith sent Elijah Abel there to maybe feel out prospects for establishing the church uh, within the Black community in Ontario. You know, we, we can't have them, in, you know, in the gathering place. We can't have uh, blacks gather to, to the real Zion, but maybe we can have them in a safer locale uh, in Ontario, Canada, where slavery is uh, is illegal and blacks can do well for themselves.
0: That makes sense. Do we have any feedback from source material that tells us how successful a mission that he, uh, he had?
2: You, you know, we, we do have some evidence. There was a woman by the name of Eunice Ross, and you know, later in life she wrote letters uh, discussing some of his missionary activities. And the storyline that, that comes to us is that he was a tremendous preacher. You know, he was very charismatic. She said that she had never heard a gospel sermon like that in her life. Hmm. Yet he was illiterate. So he, he wasn't very polished. He wasn't the kind of person who could, you know, fascinate you with great turns of phrases. But, you know, the mere power of his testimony was enough to eventually convert, convert Eunice Ross uh, to the Mormon faith. Uh, that being said, though, he did have a pretty difficult time. Um, <clears throat> First of all, Canada was on the verge of civil war. And this is one of those stories that really gets left out of, uh, out of American history, even though it did have implications for um, American foreign policy at the time. So we don't often talk about you know, the, the foreign policy of Canada and the United States generally. But in Elijah Abel's case, you know, this had real and immediate consequences. You see, there was a, a clique of pro-American rebels in Ontario, Canada at that time that wanted to ally Ontario with the United States. Now, Ontario was still under British rule, so they weren't about to let that happen. Elijah Abel's walks into Canada in the middle of all this. So what you have is you have Elijah Abel's, who is one black, two an American, and three a Mormon. All three identities are working against him, and it's not long before rumors begin to be circulated that Elijah Abel's was involved in some some foul play. You know, they had been involved in the murder of a uh, of a family. Now, there is no evidence that this is actually the case, but these kinds of accusations are being leveled against Mormons throughout the region, and largely because of their you know affiliation with an American religion. It didn't help that they kept talking about this this great gathering place in western Missouri. So, their theology is American, and, you know, some of them, at least, you know, they had American connections. So Elijah Abels had to negotiate a, a pretty tense political um, situation, and he himself would be the, the target of mob attack. On one occasion, uh, they chased him through the woods, and eventually he, he made his way to a Mormon household, and it looked like they were going to tar and feather him. And then the housewife comes out and opens fire. On the on the mob, it's a it's a pretty colorful uh, uh, image that uh, that this correspondence presents before us. Uh, it, it does tell us, though, that white Latter Day Saints they they felt an obligation to protect their black brother, you know, even um, you know even by force.
0: Cool. Do we know uh, how long he served his mission for?
2: It, uh, what we know is that it wasn't very long. He was out of Canada by uh, September, early October, eighteen thirty eight. And Eunice talked about him arriving in, in April or so. So I would say it was less than a year, probably something on the order of, of five to six months.
0: Gotcha. Well, so he ends his mission. What do we know about the rest of uh, his life?
2: You know, we, we know a lot about the rest of his life and, you know, we could talk for hours and hours about this, but you know, just a, a couple of the highlights. He eventually makes his way to Nauvoo. He works as an, as a, an undertaker there. He also serves on a rescue squad to, save Joseph Smith from a kidnapping attempt. Um, later on, he moves to Cincinnati, and this is, um, or he moves back to Cincinnati, and this is probably the most important period in his life, because this is when he has a position of authority, and he is living uh, quite a ways away from the Latter-day Saints. So the fact, you know, how he handles himself, when given power, I think reveals a lot about his character. The next evidence that we have of his activities in Cincinnati, it comes up in 1845 after the death of Joseph Smith. Now, I've mentioned before that Joseph and Elijah were very close friends. You could argue that, well, maybe the only reason Elijah stayed in the church at all was because of Joseph Smith. But the evidence that we have tells us a a different story. Joseph is dead, there is, you know, the succession crisis, you know, a lot of infighting between the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, uh, Sidney Rigdon, James Strang, they're all fighting for the mantle of Joseph. Now, you could imagine that if Elijah really had only converted for Joseph Smith, either one, he would have defected at this point, hey, you know, this isn't for me, you know, my my friend Joseph is dead, and frankly, some of you have treated me pretty badly. Uh, But, he doesn't do that. Instead, he actually cracks down on dissent in favor of the Twelve. When, it, when some women begin criticizing the, the Quorum of the Twelve, he says, we can't have this. And
0: it,
2: uh, he calls for their excommunication. And that excommunication is uh, promptly executed.
0: Um, do we know anything about uh, what year he died and, and perhaps how his death came about? You
2: know, he died in 1884 and you know, he basically died of old age. Uh, it is uh, It is interesting that he died only a few weeks after you know, serving a, a mission to, uh, again to Cincinnati. By this point, his wife had died. He was living you know, as a lone man and, and a renter in, you know, in some member's house. He was entirely alienated from his family, uh, but yet he was still willing to serve a mission in the closing days of his life, and that mission probably cost him his life.
0: Was he ever called upon in any kind of leadership positions within the church uh, or certain callings or anything like that that we know of
2: um, yes, in yes, his uh, life? But but in 1839, um, oh excuse me, in December of 1836, we know that he was a seventy because his name appears on a roll for the first council of the seventy. Wow. So at, at this point, you know, he was entrusted with with a relative degree of authority, and he, you know, he obviously exercised that when he uh, was living in Cincinnati.
0: Gotcha. So let's move into another area. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the origins of the priesthood ban from your perspective and your research with Elijah Abels. And maybe if you want to share with me some prominent figures, and obviously Joseph Smith will play into this, but how we got to a point where we had a policy where uh, those with uh, black skin from African descent couldn't have the priesthood.
2: And and that's a really important uh, question. I'm, I'm glad you asked it. So, you know, as I've discussed earlier, Joseph Smith, he basically supported an inclusive policy, even if he engaged in, you know, some level of racial politics, you know, out of self-preservation. The origins of the priesthood ban itself date to a time period between 1847 and 1849. So, you know, we have in spring of 1846, Latter-day Saints, they, they leave Nauvoo, and it appears that they're going to be going. They're going to go to the west, you know, either to you know, California or the Great Basin or maybe in the, the Northwest. It's not entirely certain at this point. They settle in winter quarters. Now, I, I think it's no. It's important to understand how they saw themselves, and I think it's a, it's a useful tool for how we can understand you know, their the evolution of the race policy. They saw themselves as Israel. Now. In Old Testament times, Israel was not immune from collective sin. In fact, quite the contrary. They often were chastised for collectively sinning in a variety of different ways. Uh, The most uh, famous of them being the building of the golden calf in the wilderness. And and that caused Israel to to wander for some 40 years. Uh, I don't think that 19th century Mormons are that much different from ancient Israel in that regard either. So they're in winter quarters and... A, a mysterious African-American man by the name of William McCary uh, joins their midst. You know, he had been baptized and presumably had been ordained to the priesthood. He had married a white Latter-day Saint woman by the name of uh, Lucy Stanton. Her father was a prominent Latter-day Saint. He had been a state president. And he was he was a wide, widely known figure within Latter-day Saint circles. So here you have this prominent white woman marrying a black man. And is scandalize the winter quarters community uh, they couldn't believe that uh, Lucy Stanton would ever do something so depraved in, in as I mentioned earlier uh, this was really a line that nobody dare cross uh, whether you're northern or southern you you made this is the kind of a thing that at uh, at your kindest you made jokes about this and at worst it would probably cost some people their lives so immediately the the Mormons began hurling racial epithets uh, at William McCary and his wife Lucy—they they use the N word quite freely, and it's pretty offensive to them. So William McCary and Lucy approach Brigham Young as well as several apostles, and they say, "Brother Brigham, well, what do you have to say about this? That you know, they keep saying these things about us, and, and and it's wrong. And you know what Brother Brigham says? Mind you, he's looking at Lucy and William in the eyes. You know, he's looking at, uh, at racial intermarriage, this the sin of sins, and." he doesn't even glance at it. In fact, he says, you know what, your color does not matter. Your skin doesn't matter. We are all of one flesh. In fact, he says, one of our best elders is you know, a black man living in Massachusetts. He was referring to Walker Lewis. So mm-hmm. as late as, or excuse me, in March of 1847, Brigham Young, <laughs> uh, he, he would have opposed a priesthood ban. Now, what ends up happening is Brigham Young leaves Nauvoo goes out west, you know, to, to settle, you know, this is the place and all that. But while Brigham Young is out west, William McCarry implements a form of racial intermarriage. And it's to make matters worse, it's plural marriage. And he he does this with several of the women there. He's a very charismatic man. He, he knew how to charm women. And some of these women were married. You can imagine it doesn't take too long before he is run out of town on a rail and his wife is sent in tow. So the leaders who had you know, given William McCary any kind of standing in the church, they come under uh, quite a bit of pressure. You know, they're accusing you know, Orson Hyde of, you know, of giving a, a horrible creature like William McCary this kind of authority. And it is within this context that you have the very first comment connecting skin color to a priesthood ban. Uh, Parley P. Pratt stands up, And tells everyone, you know, know, this is a, this is an awful man. How could you dare follow him? How could you dare listen to him? You know, a a man like him with the blood of Ham has no right to the priesthood. So this is, this is the first evidence of there being any kind of connection between skin color and uh, an exclusionary policy as as regards to race.
0: Do we get any feel? Obviously you're saying that's the first time, but yet, it doesn't take long after this for it to become a pretty solid policy. Do we get any feel that Joseph Smith on some level, Brigham Young on some level, were teaching this or preparing for it or figuring their way through it and this was still an option on the table? Or is it this kind of these events here that you're speaking of that just kind of put this into motion?
2: You know, I'll have to actually address the first part of your comment um, first. You say that it didn't take long for this policy to become hard and fast. I would actually suggest that my research problematizes that narrative somewhat. So um, by 1849, you know, Brigham Young had had made it clear that he did not want blacks holding the priesthood. Now, the, you know, there were some events that led to that, and it's clear that he, you know, he was going through a pretty uh, significant internal struggle over this. know, on the one hand, he wanted to give blacks the priesthood. But on the other hand, you know, he did have some latent racial sentiments that he had inherited from his upbringing, and you know, it didn't take much for him to snap, as it were. Uh, that being said, though, in spite of Brigham Young's views, we know that as late as 1861, uh, the race policy, uh, as as we refer to it, uh, was not really rooted uh, within the Mormon populace. And, and the reason we know that is that there's a letter from a man living in Paraguay, and he gives us a, a first-hand account of, what it means to have African ancestry in an outlying community. He goes around asking church leaders, listen, I ha-, he says, I have African ancestry, what does this mean? Uh, can I hold the priesthood or can I And none of them seem to know the answer. In fact, one of them says, hey, this is a new thing to me. I- I've never heard of this. So, hmm. w- well, I think he may have been going a little bit, little bit far. I think he was maybe covering his tracks a little bit. He, he wanted to you know, give himself the best possible image in this letter, on the other hand, I do think it does speak to the degree to which the race policy had sunk in. There was a sense that there was something wrong with it. It was something that you might even get mocked over, but it was not solidified even as uh, as late as 1861. In fact, uh, no official decisions would be made until the late 1870s as regards um, to you know, blacks having priesthood.
0: Do we have a date on... The the latest ordination to take place before the ban is pretty much across the board.
2: Um, we don't have an exact date, but that would be William McCary. We know that Orson Hyde ordained him, so that would be around 1846, 1847. Uh, there had been another man in Massachusetts, and his name is Walker Lewis, and he had been ordained in the early 1840s.
0: Gotcha. What is the the church's relations? I mean, we talk about the relationship with blacks. What's their relationship with Native Americans at the time, um, maybe other ethnicities such as Polynesians? What What is the church doing in regards to priesthood with these other cultural groups?
2: Yeah, and that's an important comparison to make because it, it gives us some insight into Mormonism, Mormonism's racial worldview. So there, the, the Mormons' relationship with Native Americans. It was seen as a, as a paternal relationship. You see, the Book of Mormon, it was widely understood to be a text about the history of the American Indian. And it talks about how, you know, the Lamanites are a chosen people and how they have tremendous promise, even if, you know, the generations of sinfulness and depravity have, you know, drugged them back down to you know, their savage state. So the, the Latter-day Saints, they looked upon the quote-unquote Lamanite population fondly. You know, they, they thought that the uh, the Indians would indeed inherit the land of Missouri, and you, you see that uh, at least for the first couple generations of the Mormon experience. Uh, in 1850, Brigham Young sends a letter to to Latter Day Saints in Utah Valley, saying, "Hey, listen, you need to you, know, you need to be kinder to uh, to the local Indians. You need to extend some sympathy to them. If they kill you, understand that the reason they're doing it is because they're savages, and that's what they've been taught to do." So while that's incredibly condescending. Uh, It does, it is a call for some kind of moderation. Uh, Polynesians, same story. Uh, We have, you know, evidence from missionaries who are serving in the Polynesian Islands where they're talking about, you know, Hawaiians and and Tahitians in the same kind of light that they're talking about Native Americans.
0: Gotcha. Let's, uh, let's work towards kind of wrapping up and, and maybe give you a chance to share a few final thoughts, and then I want to I want to talk a little bit about the the book as a whole. Sure. Um, what um, so we have the priesthood giving to Elijah Abels? We have it being given to other uh, folks of African descent, brethren of African descent within the church. We we know the ban comes into place. We see that it's not a cut and dry thing. That there's a lot of issues surrounding it, and perhaps why this policy goes into place. What, uh, what are we to take away from this now that we fast forward to 1978 and the, and all worthy males are able to receive the priesthood and kind of looking back at a reflection of this whole journey, what kind of understanding should we gather from all this information that would help us better see this issue?
2: Yeah, I think that the, uh, the recent addition to Official Declaration No. 2 really speaks to this. It, the Church uh, Scriptures Division has recently edited the, the heading to Official Declaration number 2. And in it, it acknowledges that at one point in Latter-day Saint history, African-American men uh, were uh, occasionally ordained to the priesthood. And then in that heading, it says that church records offer no clear insight as to why this uh, practice was terminated. So the church is, is making clear that official declaration number two was in, in some ways an effort to revert to the past. It, it wasn't a new thing. Uh, if anything, it was a very old thing. He was saying, "Hey, listen, we got it right in the beginning. Let's, you know, get back to how we began." So, for me, the big story of Elijah Abel's—the major moral takeaway, if that's what a person is interested in—certainly the believing Latter-day Saint would be—is that, you know, this, you know, this priesthood ban was not ingrained in the Mormon experience. It was not a necessary part of Mormonism. Rather, it was an unfortunate and wrong-headed cultural adaptation. Uh, you know, I, I often compare it to you know, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Now, why did they wander in the wilderness? Well, it was because they erected a, a golden calf. Well, the Latter-day Saints ended up erecting a god of whiteness. And By the end of the 19th century, uh, Latter-day Saints are talking about Utah as being a, a white refuge, as being a place that... White people can go to without fear of, you know, marrying into lines of African descent. So the Mormons they got it right to begin with, and then they deviated from the from the path that Joseph Smith had um, essentially established for them.
0: I guess I want to go back maybe to the PBS interview where Elder Holland was interviewed, and he was asked it. point blank. Yeah, yeah, he was asked point blank about how. Um, How he would respond to the fact that early leaders in the church, Marky Peterson, uh, Elder uh, Bruce R. McConkie, and President Brigham Young, and some of the things they said, and there's others too, I I get that, but I think those are the three that are are picked on the most. And he essentially said that those brethren, unfortunately, tried to give shape to a policy and probably would have been better off not saying anything at all. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like very much to what you're speaking about, which is We got away from the truth for a while, and and it almost sounds like you're speaking to this idea of a collective sin and something that we as a people had to repent over before the Lord was ready to say, okay, now they're ready, let's put it back the way it should have been.
2: You know, I I don't think you're far off on that. I mean, in the early 20th century, uh, it's clear that the Latter-day Saints had begun to use whiteness as a way of identifying themselves, Um, certainly within the Mormon corridor. Uh, I've done some research on the history of Mormon dance, and you find that in the 1950s dance manuals, that the writers of the manuals are specifically telling youth not to dance to Jitterbug, because um, essentially it was too closely associated with the African American community. Uh, and it was widely known as a as a black dance. And you know we also have a, a BYU professor named Alma Heaton. You know he was you know he instituted the first dance classes into you know into Brigham Young University, and he he, he was specifically commissioned to teach the kids how to dance in a civilized way, how to dance in a refined way. And he said, you know, this rock and roll business is actually uh, going to eventually bring us back to the days of the African stomp dance. So whiteness was something that Latter-day Saints were actively trying to cultivate in the early 20th century. And and there are some complex reasons for that. Uh, But for our discussion, uh, I think what's what's worth noting is that the Latter-day Saints are capable of adopting the, the views of their, you know, of outsider communities. Uh, we, we are a poorest people. We like to think of ourselves as, you know, this isolated mountain people who've been living, you know, in the mountains and removed from everybody. And that was what they were trying to do. But even though they didn't entirely realize it, they had absorbed the racial prejudices of, you know, of, of those that surrounded them. And it, only a very few people like Joseph Smith were committed to enabling blacks receiving the priesthood at all.
0: Interesting. You know, my wife and I have taken ballroom dancing lessons, and the jitterbug is one of our favorites. So now I've got a story to share with that. There you when, go. When, <laughs> when somebody asked me about it. I, uh, I want to conclude with this question, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, the book and where people can find it. You uh, – well, let me start off this way. Brant Gardner, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. Um, has written a lot about uh, the translation of the Book of Mormon. And one of his, his little pet theories that I think has gotten some attention – is his looking at the Book of Mormon and looking at every instance where color is mentioned, a skin of blackness or a, mm-hmm. a dark skin. And he's related to a spiritual darkness, not at all related to their skin color. And when you were talking there the last few minutes, it reminded me of his commentary, because essentially what you're saying is that we as a people put too much focus on skin color, even in the church, and uh, in a sense got away from what Heavenly Father uh, intended uh, how we should treat each other, mm-hmm. and what are your thoughts on Brant Gardner's theory? Is that a position you take as well?
2: Uh, I, m- my particular position—I mean, I think it's a—it's an interesting position, and, and it could uh, well be true. I, I think one that is more rooted in the historical experience of the Book of peoples, and again, this is assuming that they were indeed um, actual populations—is that the Nephites were just as capable of racism as any other population. And the Book of Mormon is, at the end of the the day, primarily a Nephi text. Uh, And, you know, I've I've had some very good conversations with good scholars on this. Uh, Max Mueller is the one that comes to mind, and I need to give him um, really full credit for this particular insight, but it's one that people need to hear. Uh, He argues that, you know, Samuel the Lamanite, uh, he provides us the best insight into Mormon race out of the, the entire text, because here you have Samuel the Lamanite, who is clearly part of the racial other, you know, he's a Lamanite, he's depraved, he, he is backsliding, he preaches to the Nephites, and somehow his words disappear. Then when Jesus Christ comes, he says, well, where are the words of my servant Samuel the Lamanite? And all of these uh, presumably white-ish, or uh, comparatively white Nephites, they, they say to themselves, well, we don't know, where, where are they? What happened to them? They they just they somehow escaped the narrative. And Jesus Christ has to specifically tell Samuel, tell the, the Nephite archivists to include the words of Samuel the Lamanite, and they have to go dig them up, and eventually they're integrated into the narrative. So here you have it takes here you have Jesus Christ personally intervening to include the voices of minorities, and that that's my particular take on you know, on the Book of Mormon text as a historical document. Uh, That, I I don't think in any way, denies Brant Gardner's uh, thesis. I think it's a compliment to it. Gotcha.
0: You know, it is interesting. It almost seems to speak to the fact that we as a people always seem to struggle with those of different color or different cultures Mm -hmm. and uh, really fail to grasp the whole idea that God has sent each of his children here to to work out out their salvation um, and for us to each be brothers and sisters in the gospel, whether in the church or out of the church. And to serve each other and to help each other to, to move towards Christ.
2: Definitely, I, I absolutely agree with that. And you know, one other uh, point I would like to make um, in in regards to you know, how the Mormon people have collectively you know absorbed the sin, absorbed the sin of racism. It's it's very tempting for for us to you know, go and catalog all the comments by church leaders and say or you know look at how racist they were you know, they were oppressing uh, people of color and all of that is true by the way I mean Brigham Young himself supported um, slavery in Utah and eventually slavery slavery would be passed Utah was a slave territory uh, that being said though I think by focusing exclusively on them it deflects blame from us. They say, see, it's their fault. No, 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 our, our people were not racist on their own accord. They were just racist because their leaders told them to be. Um,
0: when so the reality is the opposite. Y-
2: yes. Yeah, if you look in 1847, for example, Brigham Young was the one who was saying, you know, skin color doesn't matter, while ordinary saints were the ones saying, oh, yes, it does. So I would say that Brigham Young was more of an indicator of where the Mormon people were, not always a leader when it came when it came to uh, race policy.
0: Got gotcha. you. Right, those are, those are not men that are completely separate from the rest of us in the culture of church membership. In other words, it was more of a reflection of where we all kind of were at that time.
2: Yes, yes, and I think that, you know, that kind of approach, it, um, not only is it more historically nuanced, but it also places a responsibility on the Mormon people to change the culture if they don't like it.
0: Right. Yeah, beautiful. One more question that just got—I just was reminded of—and maybe this will just tie us back into the whole purpose of the podcast. But this is an issue of people who have a faith crisis or ponder, or even do leave the church, are asked to list their their top issues. One of them is this ban of priesthood, the policy, the
1: mm-hmm.
0: the history behind it. And and I would simply ask you: Do you I mean? Do you see any reason why somebody has to leave a church over this issue?
2: You know, I I. I I would be lying if I said that this issue didn't trouble me. I mean, I wrote a book about it. So obviously, right. it's it's going to weigh pretty heavily on my mind. And, you know, the, the most recent evidence of this is, you know, Hans, Hans Matson. You know, he was the area authority 70 in, in Sweden, who has, he's publicly made known his doubt and his concern about um, the historicity of church claims and, and, and various historical issues. You know, he has not left the church um, at least at this point but uh, he's made it clear that there is a lot that rests on his mind and he's been quite public about it too you can even see it on on the new york times uh, so my perspective on this is that it is right for people to be troubled by this and it's clear that Elder holland himself is troubled by this uh, you know it, it's clear that the church uh, uh, church leadership is troubled by this by you know the uh, addition of official the official declarations uh, new heading and if it didn't trouble them, then they wouldn't really address it. So anyone who were to come to me and say, hey, um, Russell, I'm I really worried. Like, How could we as a people do this? Uh, I would I would sympathize with them. I would say, yeah, indeed. How could we as a people do this? How could we as a people ever possibly allow slavery to exist in our midst as it did in the, in the 1850s and, uh, and early 1860s? Uh, as to whether a person should leave the church or not, uh, my my general answer to that is, I have yet to find anything in Mormon history that is fundamentally worse than what existed in American society. Uh, you know, at the time, the Mormons' worst problems were because they were raised with American values of the 19th century. So right. that's that's my general answer. I'm not inclined to tell anyone, okay, should you leave? Shouldn't you leave? Uh, but but I can say that uh, their their crime was being too American. Gotcha. Beautiful.
0: Where can they uh, where can they find your book at?
2: Yes, um, there are a couple of different places they can, they can find it at. Um, the easiest place to get it is as a Kindle ebook. It's available on Amazon.com. Uh, they can just type in Black Mormon: The Story of Elijah Abel's. It's five ninety nine. I've tried to price it reasonably so a lot of people can get their hands on it. Uh, the other way, if you prefer to have a hard copy. Uh, is by going to my website, it's mormonhistoryguy.com. Let me just repeat that because this connection is going to be good enough for that. So that's mormonhistoryguy.com. And they can click on a link where they can place an order for a hard copy, and then I will personally ship that to them. Uh
0: Any last thoughts from you before we uh before you know, we this has been
2: a, You know, this has been a, a great interview, Bill, and I, I really support what you're doing. I, I think that we need to have more conversations like this. And if we did, I'm convinced that you know, people – you know that we could hold on to people who would otherwise feel like they didn't have a home in this church.
0: Right. Well, for my listeners, the book Black Mormon, the story of Elijah Abels, we talk continually about the issue of race in the policy prior to 1978 and we always mention the first uh, brother uh, black man who uh, member of the church who received the priesthood Elijah Abels. Here's your chance to read about him and to know about his life and to know the the experiences that he had in relation to uh, the priesthood and some of uh, Brother Stevenson's thoughts as he did that research. So please check out the book, Black Mormon, The Story of Elijah Abels. And uh, Russell Stevenson, thank you for being on Mormon Discussion. It's been my pleasure.
1: Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some Melody's sonnet Sung by flaming Tongues above Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy Redeeming love Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. And I hope, by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the To rescue me from danger, interposed His precious blood. precious blood. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see Thy lovely face clothed then in. Blood-washed linen, how I'll sing Thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry, take my ransomed soul away. Send Thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day.